Well, what's up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is your co-host, Nate Thurston from Good Morning Liberty. I can't be here today, but I did want to bring you an episode of one of my favorite podcasts. This is a weekly podcast that I never miss an episode of called Words and Numbers, co-hosted by Anthony Davies and James Harrigan. I sent Professor Davies an email earlier today. I said, hey, I can't be here But with your permission, I would like to send your newest episode out to our listeners. And he agreed. So here's the episode. Make sure you go and subscribe to their podcast on whatever podcast app it is that you're using. The link will be in the show notes. Enjoy. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers. What's new and interesting in your world this weekend? On a personal note, I went to a wedding this weekend. I told you last episode, my daughter is an economist. Her husband is an economist. We have several economists on my wife's side of the family. And my goddaughter, Jill Klein, is also an economist. She married Anthony Rosso, who's a fan of words and numbers. But not an economist. Non-economist. I'm not quite sure how to handle the fact that my goddaughter, who's an economist, is not a fan, but her husband is. One of our listeners sent an article this past week about Columbia University. A math professor there complained to the administration that the statistics used in college rankings are questionable. As is not the case in so many institutions, Columbia's administration listened to the guy and decided it's not going to participate in the next U.S. news rankings until and unless they can figure out whether these statistics are legitimate. That's actually a heartening thing, isn't it? Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's a class act. Of course, when you're in Ivy League, you can afford a class act. But almost every professor I've ever known at any college I've ever seen, on the one hand, they want to say, this is utter nonsense like this guy did, and we should just simply be done with this. On the other hand, they say, well... We've just been named this year, therefore, this is correct. Well, I collected some stories of the misrepresentation of statistics, which a lot of these that I'm going to mention, you already know, but it may come as news to our listeners. And this is kind of apropos to the season of the year as we all start to go back to start the fall semester. Many schools have admitted to outright misrepresenting statistics, and I'm not going to go through the names, but we'll put a link to the article that does name them in the show notes. You can poke through it on your own. But some examples of things that schools do. They will, for example, cap classes at 19. That is, they set a limit and say, we will not allow more than 19 students into a class. Why? Because the rankings will count how many classes have fewer than 20 students in them. And the more small classes you have like that, the higher you go in the rankings. One of the things that helps here are music classes in independent studies because typically a music class will be one professor, one student. An independent study, similarly, one professor, one student. And the universities, on the one hand, will complain about paying a professor to teach only one student, but then on the other hand are very happy because they contribute to this low student-teacher ratio. St. Vincent College, a place where I worked, discouraged independent studies by not paying professors to do them. I was at a school once that discouraged small classes. They had some limit, like if you had fewer than 10 students, the class wasn't going to go. But they had no problem with independent studies. And I had a bunch of students, there was like eight of them, I think, who wanted a particular class. 
So I signed up each one of them for an independent study. The school at the time was paying something like, I don't know what it was, $1,000 per independent study. And the dean saw that I was putting in a request for $8,000. <laughs> and he said, nope, this is a class. <laughs> and there goes my $8,000. And all of a sudden, the rule about not less than 10 students goes away. Serves you right for telling people what you were doing. But we digress. Some other examples of misrepresenting the statistics, or I should say gaming the statistics. Schools will make it easier to apply. My own university has done this. They, some years ago, removed the fee for applying to the university. They make it easier to apply. They remove the fee. Any idea why? No, I don't. Because when they make it easier to apply, more students who are less likely to survive at the university will apply. The university can then reject them, and their rejection rate goes up, which also makes you look better in the statistics. So in some meeting... A bunch of college muckety-mucks are saying, how can we break more hearts? How can we get more people to apply who we are then going to reject? That we will then reject. Well, that lines right up with everything I know about college administrators. Oh, it gets better. And I'll name this one. Baylor University paid students to retake the SAT with a bonus if they improve their scores by more than 50 points. Why? Because, well, the SATs influence your standing in the rankings. Remarkable. I was at a small school in West Virginia that used to count any job a graduate gets as employed upon graduation. If you get a job flipping burgers at McDonald's, you show up as being employed prior to graduation, and that pushes you up in the rankings. Universities will add on fees to keep tuition low, and you might notice this. You see all of these strange fees that are added on. Now, some of them, for example, if you're in a science class that has a lab and there's extra costs associated with that, there'll be a fee there. And that's understandable because people who are registered for that class pay that fee. But then there are other fees. For example, the computer fee. Every student has to pay. And so it makes you wonder, well, why isn't this just part of tuition? Everybody's got to pay it. See also student activity fee. Right, student activity fee. And why? Because one of the statistics is quoted is the tuition. And if we can push these extra costs onto fees, they don't count as tuition. You show up better in the rankings. And student fees are very expensive. Multi-thousands of dollars, yeah. It will add quite a lot to a college bill. And then you've got the sports fees or the exercise fees, which give you access to the gyms on campus. Right. It doesn't matter if you don't want access to the gyms. As you think about these rankings, we would both encourage you to ignore them because it turns out that, generally speaking, what college or university you decide to attend matters a lot less than what you decide to do when you get there. A student who goes to a mid to low rank school and really applies himself is going to go farther in life than one that goes to an Ivy League and doesn't. I can't agree with that any more than I already do. Yahoo Finance tells me spaghetti sauce is under threat as water crisis slams tomatoes. If you want to see something that's going to impact my life, here it is. I eat tomato-based dinners four to five nights a week. This is along with the blueberries. Well, I don't get blueberries as often as I would like, although there are blueberry muffins on the counter this morning. As a side note, one of our listeners from State College, Pennsylvania, thankfully wrote and said to James that this listener has an ice cream shop and will provide all sorts of blueberry ice cream to James. All he has to do is make his way to Pennsylvania. Yep, working on it. We'll get there soon. The issue here is that the tomato production coming out of California is down 25% due to water costs. We're about to have a real problem with tomatoes. 
having said that, we can move on. Here's a sentence I don't think I've ever uttered. We should talk about Liz Cheney for a moment. What's up with Liz Cheney? Well, you know, the election is coming and she is going to be absolutely hosed. There's no way that she's going to retain her House seat. And yet the death of her congressional career might well be the birth of her presidential career. Hmm. Why is she getting drummed out in Wyoming? The Cheneys in Wyoming are as close to a monarchy as you can imagine. This is political royalty between her father, Dick Cheney, former vice president, and her. And yet everybody knows that she will not have a job anymore. And there's an article, it's written by Paul Kane. I'll throw it in the show notes for you. Nine hours ago, headline, Liz Cheney's political life is likely ending and just beginning. But on the ending part, he doesn't even mention who her competition is. Isn't that strange that you can say, well, she won't be in Congress anymore and then not even mention the person she's running against? Right. Usually you won't be in Congress because of. Because of, right? Her opponent is a woman named Harriet Hageman. I'm assuming that's the pronunciation. You can yell at me later if it's not. Who is a conservative lawyer, a critic of federal environmental and land use policies in Wyoming. And here's where the money is has called the 2020 election rigged. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot wrong with her, and you can read all about it here. We've learned that in Wyoming, a Republican is very unlikely to be able to get around Donald Trump's footprint. Mm -hmm. That that's not going to happen if you're in the Republican Party. If you're running for nationwide office, on the other hand, you might be looking pretty sharp. Think about everything that would be going for her. She would be a nominal Republican, but a Republican who lost to a Trump-anointed competitor. That right there might be enough to push her past the post in terms of presidential elections. Yeah, all she needs to do is grab some of the centrist Democrats, and she's pretty much won. And I think it's real easy to look across the aisle and say, do you folks really think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris was the best you could do? I'm going to be watching what happens here because I think it's going to be interesting. Is she going to become the nominee? I doubt it. Maybe, but probably not. But what unfolds between now and whenever that comes to pass, we're going to have some entertaining political theater. Which brings us to the foolishness of the week. It's the entire country of Spain. My beloved Spain, what are they doing? Uh, Yeah, you have some kind of attachment to that place, so much so that you go on a dusty walk for 100 miles every summer. And summer is the correct answer here, because Spain has banned air conditioning below 80 degrees during this record-setting summer heat. Wow. Before you get carried away, it's both better and worse than you think. Spain has banned air conditioning in public spaces, including offices, transportation hubs, shops, bars, and restaurants. All of Europe is kind of thinking about doing this or in the process of doing this. But for Spanish purposes, what they have just done with this is told tourists in the loudest voice possible, don't come here. That's not going to be the smartest play long term, is it? Yeah, and summer there can be brutal. Oh, of course it can. This is a very hot country. I was looking into this with Germany just a few days ago. Europe is having energy crises all over the place. Not for the least reason, because they adopted this idea 
that green energy could be arrived at by a simple legislative mandate. Right. And what are we finding out now, now that the Russians are screwing up the entire energy market? Turns out you can't do that after all. And countries like Germany have nothing to fall back on because they shut down so many of the other things they were depending on. Well, here we are with Spain coming right out and saying, no, not unless it's 80 degrees or hotter. Hmm. Could you imagine setting your house air conditioner at 80? Well, but yeah, but you said public spaces, right? So presumably in my house, I could do what I want. Well, presumably, but I'm just asking. I mean, I can't imagine living in an 80 degree heat. I wouldn't go to work if it were 80 degrees. Matter of fact, when I was teaching at St. Vincent College, a place we just talked about a minute or two ago, I was stuck in a room that in the Catholic tradition had no air conditioning and the windows were painted shut. Oh, yes. I was a student in that classroom. I know the one. (laughs) Sounds like every Catholic high school there ever was. Right. I brought a thermometer in with me, and if it was over 78 degrees, I called class over and we left. How can anybody live with that kind of heat? You you have to take people's comfort into account. The first thing that's going to suffer here is tourism. And when that suffers, what happens to all the restaurants and bars? A lot of them won't be here next year all because a bunch of bureaucrats thought this was a good idea. To get more Ant and James, buy a copy of our excellent book, Cooperation and Coercion. You can find the paper and electronic versions on Amazon and the audio version on Audible. If you'd like to support Words and Numbers, make your way over to patreon.com slash wordsandnumbers, where you can contribute to our podcast-making habits. If you'd like to schedule us to come speak at your event, be it corporate or educational, or have James officiate at your wedding, send us an email at wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. So what should we talk about today? If only there were something in the news that captured everyone's attention. Well, I wasn't going to talk about this because, well, as you imply, everybody else is talking about it. But I've had, over the past week, four different people come up to me and say, okay, I'm hearing all this stuff about recession in the news What's a recession and what's it mean for me? These are intelligent people who know basically what recession implies, but they wanted to know a little more than nuts and bolts. So I thought this would be a good topic for this week. People are hungry for a definition. Are we in a recession? Question mark. Well, what constitutes a recession? There are fewer good answers to that question than people might think. No, I think you're absolutely right, James. It's kind of like asking, is it winter yet? Winter is a mark on the calendar, and when you cross it, technically it's winter, but it could still be warm out, or it could have started snowing three weeks earlier. And that's kind of like it is with recession. We draw a line in the sand, and we say everything beyond this line is recession, but what that feels like is going to vary. Well, let's be obvious about it. There is a definition that most people latch onto. Yeah, let me start one step backward of the actual definition, which I don't know. But the National Bureau of Economic Research, this is a team of independent economists, so this is not a governmental board. They come up with the official dates for recession. When economists are doing research and they want to say how are recessions different from not recessions, they go to the NBER, where their official calendar says, verily, this was recession, this was not. And NBER uses a complex system. I'm sure they have some mathematics that's written in stone, but what they say in words is a little more nebulous. They say a protracted and widespread period of economic decline. All right, so 
the NBER has not declared this to be a recession. However, given how they do business, they can't. Yeah. They will decide a year and a half from now whether this was a recessionary period. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I would warn everyone to be careful of politicians because what James said is absolutely correct. The NBER has not said that this is a recession nor has it said it's not a recession. It hasn't said anything, and it won't be because saying it anything. Can't. Right, yeah, because the data isn't in yet. The earliest we can expect them to say anything is next month, and it may even be a couple of months after that. And here we are, right back where you and I always end up when we talk about social data. We're always going to be two years away from really understanding the data. Yeah. There is no way around that, given how data is collected and reported. If you want to really understand something, given a batch of data, you have to wait for the data to be complete. And that takes a while. That's correct. And some people who are paying attention may say things like, well, yeah, but this data comes out every month. And some economic data does. There's other economic data that comes out every quarter. A lot of it comes out every month. But here's the thing. When you look up data, and the most recent data was for June 2022, you'll notice a little footnote attached to the data. And the footnote tells you it's what we call preliminary. It's the first bits of data that are coming in and whoever's processing the data is estimating what the data that hasn't come in yet looks like. So it's preliminary. And a couple months after that, they'll upgrade it to estimated. And the number will change a little bit. This is as more data comes in. And then probably six months after that, it gets upgraded again to what's called revised. And that's kind of the actual number that you can believe. For example, the economy contracted last month, I believe, by 1.7%. That's on an annualized basis, but that's the preliminary number. The estimated number that comes out in a couple of months from now, it might be less, it might be more. The revised number that comes out six months from now, that we can pretty well accept as gospel. That's going to be different still. Well, let's put the NBER in our back pocket for a moment, because there are reasonable ways to approach this. And the shorthand version of whether you're in a recession is two quarters in a row of negative growth. Yeah, two quarters in a row of negative economic growth. Let me say two things about that. The first is, this is not the definition NBER uses, but it is the fact that coincidentally, every period that NBER has blessed as saying, verily, this was a recession, every one of those periods was preceded by two quarters of negative economic growth. So now let's think about what does that mean, negative economic growth? That's effectively the question people are asking me when they said, what does this mean, recession? When we say economic growth, we mean the growth in the production of goods and services. So positive economic growth, more goods and services are being produced. Negative economic growth, less goods and services are being produced. In total, we're producing less goods and services than we produced the quarter before. You do that two quarters in a row, and that fulfills the rule of thumb estimate that we're in recession. Well, GDP is what we're looking at. Yeah, GDP is what you look at. Now, NBER is going to be a little more careful about it because really it's not GDP you should look at, but real GDP, that is GDP adjusted for inflation. At least prior to the past six months, on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis, there wasn't much difference between the two measures. But also, what matters is not just the real GDP, but the real GDP per capita. Because as each quarter goes by, we have more workers, 
we're capable of producing more stuff. And so even if your economy produces the same amount today as it did six months ago, but you have more workers today than you had six months ago, that starts to look a lot like a contraction. What about workers? A lot of them have been unemployed since 2020. Yeah. They're no longer unemployed by standard definitions. Yeah, and there's all kinds of weirdness that goes on there brought about by the COVID lockdown. Our unemployment rate now is whatever it is, 3.6%, which is roughly where it was prior to COVID. But Yeah, but it's probably much, much higher in reality. Yeah, depending on how you talk about it, it could be higher. And here's what we mean by that. Although the unemployment rate today is about the same as it was prior to COVID, there's an extra million workers that have dropped out of the labor force. That is, they couldn't find jobs for a protracted period of time, and they gave up looking. And people should be able to understand this in their regular lives, because when I leave the house here in Tucson and I start moving about town, I see help-wanted signs in every window. Yeah which means that there were a bunch of people working in these places who are no longer working in these places. Right. I think we conclude that they didn't all pass away. They actually became acclimated to not working. There's something really weird here. Because under normal circumstances, we would say, yeah, that's absolutely right. They've just decided not to work. They dropped out of the labor force. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, you drop out of the labor force, you're no longer looking for a job, you're not unemployed you're considered non-employed. You're not even counted. So to be unemployed, you have to both not have a job and be actively looking for one. And even if you don't have a job and you've been looking for one, at some point during your search, you fall off the radar again. Yeah, at some point, if you've looked long enough, someone somewhere says, okay, well, he's been looking long enough and he still hasn't found a job, so really, he's not looking. And we mark him off. That's right. It's my mother (laughs) that you hear in the background. You don't really want a job, was what she used to say to me all the time. And I would look at her and I would say, of course I don't want a job. How is that surprising to anyone? Yeah. But we have this interesting development now that is kind of coincident with COVID, that's the rise of the gig economy. It's unclear yet how we're going to count people who are working in the gig economy. So you're driving for Uber, you're renting out your house for Airbnb, or you're doing DoorDash. Normally, or I should say prior to COVID, we didn't pay much attention to that because people who did participate in the gig economy, it was a side thing, you make some extra spending money doing it. But here's what's happened now. Roughly a third of workers, a third of all workers, say they're involved in the gig economy in some fashion. They have something on the side. And a third of them say that it's their main source of income. Now, here's the thing. We don't count that. So if your main source of income is driving for Uber, you're not showing up because you're not an Uber employee. And depending on what paperwork you've filed, you may not have filed as a small business either. So you're just recording this as, I don't know what you're recording it as, 1099 income for people who are tax geeks. But the long and short of it is you're not appearing on anybody's paperwork as being employed. And yet you are. But it is going to show up in GDP. Oh, yes, but it will show up in GDP because every time you pay for an Uber, that money counts as a service that has been provided. It goes toward GDP. So where are we when things are counted towards GDP, but not employment? How does that play out in the data? Yeah, 
that question goes beyond my pay grade. <laughs> what the hell? Do I have to go get a different economist now? <laughs> no, there are people in the Bureau of Labor Statistics who process this data, who have special categories and special ways that they do this. There's a measure that they have that is the difference between what we observed on the income side versus what we observed on the spending side. And if there's a difference there, you call it something and they categorize it. This is way, way into the weeds. If you had a serious macroeconomist, he might be able to tell you something about it, but that's not my thing. No such thing as a serious macroeconomist, <laughs> but I digress. Let's get back to terra firma here because we started down this idiotic path when I said, but two quarters in a row of negative growth equals recession. You're going to need some definition to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. And as far as I can tell right now, the only people who don't want to accept that answer all work in the Biden administration. No administration wants to be straddled with a recession. Oh, no. And I'm sorry. That's what we've got here. Let's just look at it and call it what it is. Particularly with midterm elections coming. And as you have said many times, the party in power always loses congressional seats in a midterm election. And if we're in recession as well, that's just going to get augmented. Now, here's the thing. I think you're absolutely right that the politicians would love any excuse to say this is not a recession. But when it comes to the voters, they're going to vote based on what they're experiencing, not based on what the politicians are saying. And if you've lost yep. your job, your neighbor's lost your job, or you're putting off major purchases because you don't know what's going to happen six months down the road, you can call it whatever you want. But as far as you're concerned, it feels like a recession. And there's some interesting things that you've been pointing to lately that we don't talk about because they're boring, generally speaking. But <laughs> here I am to talk about them, boring though they may be. We're not seeing a big rush in unemployment. However, we are seeing wages dwindling. Yeah. So while we don't get a 3% addition to the unemployment figure, we do see 3% lower wages. And when you start thinking about this and you start looking back in time, Bill Clinton saying, it's the economy, stupid. And when Jimmy Carter was presiding over double-digit inflation, he never really had a chance. Because people, exactly as you say, vote their pocketbook. Yeah, and that had me scratching my head as well, until I came across a video by a friend of mine, Matt Rousseau, who's the dean at Susquehanna University. In this video, he says, look, there's something markedly different this time that we can be in recession, if indeed we are, that we can be in recession and yet the unemployment rate is only 3.6%, because 3.6% is not recession-level unemployment. And he says, how do you square that circle? And what he said was, look, in the past, when we've gone into recession, a chunk of people lose their jobs. And so consequently, you see unemployment rate goes from the typical 3% to 6%. He said, this time around, instead of for example, 3% of the people losing their jobs. Instead, we've all taken a 3% haircut on our wages. That is, our wages have not kept up with the inflation that's been going on. So in terms of real purchasing power, we're 3% worse off. It's as if the unemployment was spread over everybody. Instead of 6% of us being unemployed, each one of us is unemployed 6% of the time, roughly speaking, if you think in terms of your purchasing power. I kind of like that interpretation. I do too. 
And when you think about recession, what we're trying to do is apply a categorical term to a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit neatly into a category. And more than that, James, I think we're trying to apply a categorical term to a bunch of things that don't fit into a category, and we're trying to apply it to the country as a whole where different parts of the country are feeling different things. I was on a radio interview the other day with a station in Colorado. The interviewer was saying, oh, yeah, you can look around here in Denver and clearly we're in recession. And I'm thinking, well, you can look around in Pittsburgh and it doesn't look like recession at all. So these things are going to hit different parts of the country in different ways. And here in Tucson, I'm more than happy to say it doesn't really feel that way in some respects because our minimum wage is so high that it plays around with the job market. Prices, on the other hand, when you go out to buy some basic things, my God, you get tattooed with the prices. Yeah. Now, if I told a friend in Southern California what I pay for certain things here, they would only laugh at me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because these prices, from their perspective, are functionally free. I was talking to an Uber driver a couple of weeks ago when I was in California, and he said, oh, yeah, the price of gas out here a few weeks ago topped $7 a gallon. <laughs> oh, my God. We're all the way back down now to 409 Yeah. All the way back down to 409 that should be $2. I'm just going to be agitated about the price of gas. Sorry. Something that we should mention about recession is that recession can often be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is part of why politicians are loath to use the term. If, for example, we are not in recession, everything's going along fine. A politician comes along and says, oh, look at the economy. We're in recession. Even though we're not, he says we're in recession. What's going to happen? People are going to look around and say, okay, well, we're in recession. I haven't lost my job yet, thank God, but I'm going to put off buying that car I was going to buy, or I'm going to put off doing the repairs on my home or whatever it is. I'm going to cut back on my spending in anticipation of the possibility of losing my job or losing hours in the future. And when everybody does that, spending declines, production declines, and all of a sudden you actually do get a recession. That's right. But it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And let's be really clear. Yeah, Joe Biden does not want to use the term recession to refer to what we're dealing with right now. In 2019, he would have been using that term so often that we would have called him recession Joe. Yep. For the midterms, these words are going to tattoo anybody who already has a job in government. What did you do to counteract the recession we were in? Right. Because people think that politicians can wave their hands and make something different happen. I think one of the dumbest things that I've seen is what was life like on January 6th when there was a riot at the Capitol? Well, gas was $1.93 a gallon. They list all the things that were readily available and cheap as if a presidential administration matters one way or the other on this sort of thing. This topic came up on that radio interview I just mentioned, and it suddenly occurred to me, which I mentioned to the interviewer, that people had gone around the gas pumps and put that sticker of Joe Biden saying, I did that when gas prices were whatever, they're four or five dollars a gallon. But if they drop back down to 250, those stickers are still there. And all of a sudden they're going to have the opposite effect that the people who put them there intended them to have. Does it make a difference around the margins? Yeah, sure it does. But it's on the margin. I want to go down that path for a moment. You're asking about what these politicians can do, and people will ask them, what did you do? 
Well, it turns out they're doing something, and that something is the Inflation Recovery Act, which I believe has passed the House. It's still waiting on the Senate. And I'm just guessing, but if we've got a thing called the Inflation Recovery Act, what we're going to end up recovering is higher inflation. What's kind of the thing over the past decade, pretty much every bill that I've seen go through Congress, I mean, I haven't seen them all, but of all the ones that hit the news, their titles are the exact opposite of what they do. Kind of like the Affordable Care Act. Right, exactly. The Unaffordable Care Act. If people want to remember a case in point, that's right. But here with the Inflation Recovery Act, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. And apparently there's a bunch of earmarks for green energy and this sort of thing. But the one piece of it that stands out to me is an increase in taxes, particularly on small businesses. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, well, there's a couple of problems here. One is, look, you get inflation when your money supply grows faster than your production of goods and services. You simply have more dollars chasing fewer goods and services, so prices go up. That's inflation. If you tax businesses, particularly small businesses, and small businesses account for whatever it is, like 40 or 50% of businesses out there, and I think something like 90% of employees, but don't quote me on that. But if you tax businesses, what are you doing? You're creating a disincentive to produce, which is the exact opposite thing. Now we're going to have the same amount of dollars chasing even fewer goods and services. It's going to give you exactly the inflation that you're trying to avoid. Now, the argument that the politicians give is, well, we're going to raise these taxes on businesses because actually we want to reduce consumer demand. We want consumers to be spending less money. Okay, but where's this money going to go? It's going to go to the government. And what are they going to do? They're going to spend it. The same amount of money is going to be spent. It's just going to be spent by politicians rather than being spent by people. So we're going to get things produced that politicians and bureaucrats want rather than things that consumers want. In asking whether we're in a recession, we cover a bunch of different categories that make it impossible to declare that we are, even if every one of us knows that we are. And then in order to get out of the thing that we can't declare that we're in, we're going to play with the money supply in such a way that everybody will be worse off in the end. Oh, Do I have it right? Oh, worse than that, James. We're not going to play with the money supply. We're going to play with the actual production of goods and services. The Inflation Recovery Act will reduce the production of goods and services. So there you go, America. Are you in a recession? Oh, who knows? The NBER people will tell us literally in a year and a half. Until then, you won't be able to buy nearly as much of the stuff as you want, and you will have even less money left over at the end of the month after you buy less than you wanted. There's an analogy I use here when I'm teaching this to my students. I say, look, Imagine that we removed the windshield in your car and replaced it with a widescreen television that fit the same size as your windshield. And we mounted on the front of your car a camera that feeds into this video device so that as you sit there driving and you look out what used to be your front window, you see everything you would have seen if your windshield were still there instead of a television monitor. Now, Let's introduce a 10-second lag between what the camera sees and what your television displays. And imagine the problem you're going to have with driving, right? You look out there and everything looks fine, so you're driving along. What you don't know is that the traffic in front of you had just stopped because you don't see that until 10 seconds later, and so you run to the guy in front of you. Or you're sitting there stopped at a red light, and people start beeping at you. Why? The light is red? No, it's not. It turned green 10 seconds ago. 
you're still seeing the red light. And of course, you can imagine now the problems you would have driving if that were the case. And that's just a 10 second lag. We've got a very similar lag when it comes to economic policies. And that is it takes anywhere from, I'd say, six to 12 months, maybe 18 for politicians to realize we have a problem like a recession or like inflation to come up with some plan to quote unquote fight it to get the plan through Congress and whatever regulatory bodies it needs to go through, then implemented and then actually have it have an effect on the economy. So what actually happens is even well-meaning, brilliant politicians who have plans that actually would help, they end up making things worse because by the time those plans actually start to have an effect, the economy has already repaired itself. And so you end up in this weird situation where you've got plans for growing the economy that are coming out when the economy is already going gangbusters and they just create inflation. Or you have plans involving slowing down the economy when the economy is already in recession. All you do is create a depression. The moral of the story is the best thing politicians can do is just leave it alone. The economy is going to correct itself. Anything they're going to do, if it helps, it's going to be by random chance. More often than not, it's actually going to make things worse. That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we talk about something even more depressing than we talked about today. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter. Handles are in the show notes. You can join the Words and Numbers Facebook group backstage where the conversation continues. And, well, you can do a couple things. You can send us email at wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. And you can check out our new website at wordsandnumbers.org. Well, I guess we're going to have to have a new website by the time this goes live. <laughs> right. It's actually in process. But by the time this episode comes out, it better be live. I think, as is usual, Anthony is a touch optimistic about this. <laughs> but we'll all wait and find out together. Until then, see you next week and try to remember to just be nice to each other. See how it feels. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't. But you'll never know until you try. Ant, I'll see you next week. See you next week, James.